Romans chapter 8. And I'd just like to say in the beginning here how thankful I am for uh, the opportunity this morning, even though it is uh, not the best of circumstances with pastor being sick, but um, <clears throat> that the Lord has opened the door here for us to finish out this chapter. And uh, the door was kind of suddenly opened there for me. And <clears throat> I was telling Kelly this morning that there's just nothing that replaces studying and working through a passage to teach it that helps helps us, helps you, whoever is teaching, that opportunity uh, to know that passage. And there is so much here for us to understand and grow in. Um, so thankful for the Lord and His work, everything that He has done in my own heart and life in going through this chapter, and I trust that uh, some of that has been uh, gained or conveyed even in our time together um, during these, I'll say, years. <laughs> Back in September of 20 is when we started, so we're finishing out here. Well, we had the opportunity here this morning to read through the entire chapter. And what I'd like to do is begin in, in verse 31 to kind of get us back into the understanding of this section, this ending section that Paul has for in this letter, uh, this chapter in Romans. That is, he closes out uh, this section of the letter that <clears throat> we would be able to understand even more clearly what those last uh, five verses are talking about. And in verse 31, he starts off by saying there, there's a question. And he says, what then shall we say to these things? And as we've looked at before, those that, that phrase, these things, refers to at least all that, that uh, Paul has been talking about or mentioned, not only in this chapter, but also looking back to chapters 5 through 8. So the beginning of chapter 5, all running all the way through to this section, at least. It could be that he's taken even a further view back and said the whole book or the whole letter up to this point. But these are the things that <clears throat> when we consider all that Paul has been teaching and working through in these chapters. It's, it's like he comes to this point and he asks a question that really does not have an answer to it. The question is this, what shall we say to these things? It's almost like we could, um, we could compare it to the vast glory of something. Like if you were to uh, come up to the edge of the Grand Canyon, you know, you come up to that edge, and if you've ever been there and seen the vastness of it, you just stand there, and when you first get there, you just look. Like you just stand there, and what do you say? What can I say about what's before me? It's like we have nothing truly adequate to say that compares to the vast glory of what God has done in us and given to us. And yet, on the other hand, what shall we then say to these things? On the other hand, we could be speaking the praise, his praise, forever and ever. It's like the praise and adoration that will go on and on and on and on. We, could, uh, we do have some examples of the praise and adoration in our scriptures. If you look at Romans 5.13, you have to turn there. But he says, and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and on the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. It's, it's almost like you could at this point bring in a huge choir and sing the hallelujah, the uh, the Messiah from Handel's Messiah. 
and climax that with um, the Holy Chorus or the Amen Chorus. But it's like <clears throat> we just stand back and say, what shall we say? There are there is so much that we have that is in this that it's really we become speechless. And then he goes on and then says, <clears throat> verse 31, if God is for us, who is against us? And really, just to walk through these and answer those questions, we would simply say that the, uh, the answer to that question is no one. No one. If God is for us, no one can be against us. Since God is for us, no one and nothing because he's going to get into things later on, no one and nothing can successfully be against us. Paul is going to refer not only to the individuals and beings that are going to be against us or that are going to try to work against us, but he's also going to bring up things that are going to be against us. And even though there will be accusations and other kinds of sufferings, none of them, none of them will be successful. They all Go, up, go down in defeat. And so how do I know? We get to this point here and then we say to ourselves, well, how do I know? How do I know that God is for me and that nothing will be successful against me? I mean, can I really be sure? There seems to be a lot against me in this life. There seems to be a lot against us as we try to move forward or walk forward in our lives and knowing the Lord or doing what he wants us to do. Well, Paul here, and I'm going to kind of divide it up this way this time. Paul gives four proofs that show us that there is going to not, nothing is going to be successful against us, even though there's a lot that is trying to be against us. And in verse 32, <clears throat> he then continues these questions. And he says this question, or verse 32, uh, with his first proof, and let me state the proof first. It's this. God will graciously give us all things. God will graciously give us all things. And so, <clears throat> verse 32, he says, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And really we would, to answer that question is simply, yes, he will freely give us all things. But then the, the question then comes up, well, how do I know? How do I know that he will freely give us all things? And that was stated uh, just before the question when Paul says, we know this because he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Now we know that we, he will give us all things. It's like this, God gave his son. And the emphasis there is the fact that it is his son that he gave his only son. He didn't choose anyone else from creation until now. He chose his son. And not only that, he, God delivered his own son over to be slaughtered. That is, to be delivered over to wicked men. And in that deliverance to those wicked men, what did they do with him? They slaughtered him. And that's what God did. And, and we know this, or the, he, he ends by simply saying, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will, for, excuse me, for us all, there's the emphasis, for us. He gave his son, delivered to be slaughtered, for us. And it's like Paul argues from the greater to the lesser. The greater is this, God did not spare his own son. He, Jesus Christ was the sacrifice for sin. He was the propitiation. He bore the wrath of God for us on the cross. And is there any greater gift than that? 
And the answer is no. There is no greater gift than that. Therefore, if God has given us the greatest gift to begin with, then he will also give us everything else. It just comes right, right after, like, yes, I have given, he has given us his son, therefore all these other lesser things will also be given to us. That is, all of the promises mentioned in these chapters, everything that he has mentioned in chapters 5 through 8, everything that we need to put off sin and put on Christ, endure in suffering, trust in him, and live in hope. He has given us his spirit who walks with us. He enables our minds to understand, and he testifies in our hearts that we are his. God has promised to give us glory. He has promised to give us his glory in Christ Jesus. He will surely give us all things. End of question. Proof number two. No one will successfully bring a charge against us. No one will successfully bring a charge against us. This is pointed out here in verses 33, um, and it's related to in verse uh, 34. But verse 33 says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And here simply the answer is, no one. (laughs) No one can bring a charge against God's elect. Why? Because it is God is the one who justifies. And here's the reality. If the judge has already made the declaration, then it is over. If God has already chosen the one being judged, then it is over before it has even begun. No one can bring a charge against someone who has already been justified by God. That is the answer. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? No one. And we're working through these pretty quickly here. Proof number three, he is this. No one will condemn us. No one will condemn us. And that's verse 34 where he simply says, who is the one who condemns? The answer is no one. Well, how do I know that? How do I know that In the end, at that last day, some will not show up and point out everything that I've already known about myself, my sin, and condemn me. How will I know that? Well, it's this. He goes on to say, Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. When we think about all those things that are there, It's this, Christ died for us. And he already brought that out earlier. He was raised for us. He is now triumphantly sitting on the right hand of God. And right now, he is interceding for us. And you've got this aspect of God uh, in the past, where he died and was raised, And you've got this present, he's triumphantly now sitting and interceding. And remember, who has God appointed as judge? Who is the one that's going to be the judge? Well, God has appointed Jesus Christ as the judge of all. And you remember, we looked at this earlier, where in 2 Corinthians 5.10, where it simply says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's his judgment seat. John 5, 21 to 22 says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. And the reality is this. If the judge dies and is raised and is sitting on the right hand of God, then every person for whom he is interceding is safe. 
Those people for whom he is interceding will be safe on the judgment day. And and anyone who simply believes these truths, confesses him to be Lord and bows their knee to him, will be justified and will be safe in that day. And we have this proof that these things, that God is for us. Well, that then brings us to verses 35 through the end of the chapter. And this is all talking about this aspect, and we call it proof number four. Nothing will separate us from Christ's love for us. Nothing will separate us from Christ's love for us. And here is the question that Paul asks. He says this, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who or what will separate us from the love of Christ? That's the question that's going to take us from here all the way to the end of the chapter. Who or what will separate us from the love of Christ? Now, before we get to the answer of that question, we should ask another question. Is this talking about my love for Christ or Christ's love for me? We're talking about, you know, this love of Christ. Is this like uh, my love for Christ or Christ's love for me? Well, I think we can definitively answer that by looking at verse 37. And looking at the end of that verse, we'll just read it here. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So this is talking about Christ's love for us. And we're going to see here that Christ's love, God's love, it's the same love for us. And so we've got this reality that God, that Christ, loves us, and nothing, or what is, <laughs> here I'm giving the answer, right? What is going to separate us from that love of God? And this, this question seems to hit at the very heart of our security before God. Because if our minds question God's love for us, then our security in Him can be broken. And this does hit at the very heart of um, what we're talking about here about God's love, about security. So here's, here's the answer. And again, before we get into the answer, um, Paul does something else first before he gets into the specific answer, before he answers that question. And look what he does um, at first. At first, he describes the conditions that God's people experience. And he deliberately brings up the stumbling block when thinking about the reality of Christ loving us. Because there are certain things that will come into our lives that will come into our lives that can be a stumbling block in our minds and hearts to think or know or be secure in God's love for us. In other words, these are the things that can cause us to think that God does not love us. So what are those things? And he says this, will tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Those seven things. Now, when Paul mentions these seven things, it's evident that his intent is to cover everything. Like to cover every situation out there that would be 
I could simply say bad for God's people. Every situation that your mind could ever imagine that could be bad for God's people. All right? So <clears throat> he brings up these things on purpose for us to pause and to think about them. So let's go through this list here and talk about or understand what he is referring to in these ways so that we get the full impact of what Paul is saying. The first one there is this word tribulation. Tribulation is simply trouble. Trouble in this life. And this is trouble that uh, kind of has the idea of squeezing us or puts pressure on us. This can refer to outward difficulties, like the outside, the things that are happening around us that put pressure on us. But it also refers to emotional or internal stress that happens within us. And often these go, that is the outs, outward and the inward, often these go hand in hand. A lot of times the outward circumstances can put pressure on our inward emotional being. So that that trouble, that inward distress that no one necessarily knows about is, is putting this squeeze on us. All right, those kinds of things, those outward things, those inward things that cause us, um, that uh, we can feel this trouble, can those things, outward or inward, separate you from the love of Christ, from Christ loving you? What about this one? The next one, distress. Distress has the word, this is the word that uh, is the idea of narrowness or being put in a narrow place. It's like the circumstances have hemmed you in a narrow place and you find yourself helpless. Like you can't move, you're, you're trapped. Even in emergencies. This would even include things like you're literally physically trapped. And in such places, when your circumstances have put you in there, it's like all you can do is look up. You are trapped, and it seems like there is no way out, and doom is about to overcome you. All right? In those situations, can that separate you from the love of Christ, Christ's love for you? How about this one, persecution? This is affliction suffered for the sake of Christ. When people say all manner of evil against you falsely, or you are the target of a plot to get rid of you. I mean, this would include things like fines, incarnation, beatings, prison, and even death. That kind of persecution. And really, when we pause to kind of think through these, we can think of, you know, situations that include tribulation, distress, and persecution. But we could pause here with this persecution one and just think of those people that are around the world that are facing that literal persecution where they are in prison and facing all of the uh, realities and sufferings of being in that place. Does that, does persecution separate you from Christ loving you? How about this? Famine. This is when you do not have enough to eat. Famine leads to slow starvation. This can happen to Christians who lose their employment because of persecution. Or this can happen like it happened to our Lord in the wilderness in that we are literally in a place where uh, we do not have enough to eat. The hunger grows and the body becomes weaker and weaker. And it's like that basic fundamental need that we have is gone. It's not there. And you're in that position and you are starving to death. Does that separate you 
from Christ loving you. Let's go on. Nakedness. Nakedness. This is destitution. This refers to someone who does not even have what is necessary to have proper clothing. We all know of the sense of shame that makes us put on clothing. All right? So nakedness is a situation where you don't own enough clothes to cover our bodies so that we do not feel that shame. I mean, that's destitution. Because in a place like that, we would do just about anything to put, make sure we have clothing. Does nakedness separate you from Christ loving you? Peril, the next one. Peril is to be exposed to danger in general. This includes situations that are treacherous and even dangerous. And you are faced with having to uh, go places or be somewhere where this is the case, where there is danger in general all around. Does Christ, does that separate? Or this last one, sword. The sword was used to kill people on purpose. Murderers were often characterized by this word sword. It was a symbol of death. People would use uh, the sword to attack and kill other people. So in Paul saying this, we could say, so this is like being exposed to the danger of people trying to kill God's people, even hunt them down to kill them. Another instance or another reality there, does that separate? The bottom line is this, that Paul intends to cover every seemingly insignificant inconvenience to the absolute worst suffering imaginable. And when, when those situations in thinking about them, when I look around at other believers now and see their difficulties and sufferings, and then I look back further in history to think about all the suffering that God's people have endured, and then I look at myself and all the difficulties and sufferings and excruciating circumstances that I have walked through, or am right now walking through, do those circumstances prove that Christ does not love me? Do those things prove that Christ does not love me? Because those circumstances and in our own minds and hearts, it could be screaming that yes, that God does not love me because I'm going through these circumstances. Each one of these items can cause us to question whether or not God loves us. The questioning may sound something like this. You know, you might be there and saying, Lord, you see me in my tribulation. And you see me in this trouble. Do you still love me? Or this, you see me in my distress. Do you still love me? Or you see me, Lord, do you see me in my persecution? I know that you see me. Do you still love me? Or Lord, you see that I have nothing to eat and I am starving. Do you still love me? Lord, you see me in my nakedness, like I don't even have enough clothes to wear. Do you still love me? Or peril, I am in danger and I am trapped. Lord, do you still love me? Or lastly, Lord, do you see these people that are trying to kill me? Do you still love me? And then, Paul then quotes a verse that doesn't seem to give any comfort. 
right? If you look at the next verse here, he says in verse 36, just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, what's going on here with this? I thought, I thought Paul was going to try to give me comfort in, the, in this. And now he tells me that just as it's written, okay, all these, all these things that we just talked about, all right, now, think about this. You're like a sheep, and you are destined to be slaughtered. And that's found in Psalm 44 in verse 22. In fact, let's, let's go there for a minute to look and see, get a full sense of that psalm. <clears throat> Psalm 44. And read through other verses that are mentioned. And we're going to... Um, we're actually going to start back in verse 9 and see the full impact of this. <clears throat> so Psalm 42, starting in verse 9, excuse me, 44. Psalm 44, starting in verse 9, he says, Yet you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor, and do not go out with our armies, and cause us to turn back from the adversary. And those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You give us as sheep to be eaten and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people cheaply and have not profited for, by their sale. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my dishonor is before me and my humiliation has overwhelmed me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, and we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, and our steps have not deviated from your way. Yet you have crushed us in this place of jackals, and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God, or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart." But for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And we'll end there. That is the section of Psalm that, that Paul is quoting here. And the reality is, when you read the full, those other verses, it just has more of an impact of the reality that these things, that, that all these Bad things are happening. But the point is this. Who are they happening to? These people in this psalm, are they trusting the Lord? Are they believers in him? Yes. These are God's people. And the point is this. Believers, Christians, suffer in this life. They will suffer the same exact things that Paul mentioned above. In fact, if we were to look back and look back through our Old Testament and through our Bible and think through, did God's people suffer like this, the way that Paul just described in those ways? And the answer is yes. Let me just give us a little sampling of those ways. Like if we were to go back to tribulation, that is outward and inward distress of soul. Can you think of anybody in the Old Testament like that? How about Jeremiah? Did he ever suffer like that? Or Habakkuk when the armies were coming? Or how about this, distressed, that is trapped and helpless? Think through that. How about Joseph? Trapped and helpless. Or persecution. Suffering for the sake of Christ. We can go to our New Testament and see this. Uh, many places, Peter and the others getting beaten for being a Christian and declaring the gospel. How about famine? That is, you don't have enough food to eat. 
we would say the whole nation of Israel in the wilderness. These are God's people. Nakedness, not having necessary clothing. When Babylon came and took captives from Jerusalem to Babylon, do you know what they would often do? And Jeremiah describes this. They would, they would remove their clothes and they would march from there all the way to Babylon like that. Think of Daniel and his friends being in that position. Or peril that is exposed to danger. How about Saul, or Paul, uh, excuse me, David, running from Saul. David, as he's running around, and he's running around mountains, and running from here, and running from there, that he's constantly exposed to danger. Or sword, you know, to be hunted down in order to be murdered. Think of that. How about Elijah? When he was being chased by Ahab and Jezebel, and Jezebel says, by the end of tomorrow, you're going to be dead. All right. Are these God's people? Were they separated from the love of God? No. In fact, you have the assurance over and over throughout those very examples of God loving those people. I mean, the, the one that makes me think, uh, I mean, we can think of probably many different examples, but Daniel, he was beloved. Remember the angel said it, you are beloved of God. And yet think of the things that he had to suffer being God's person. And now let's bring this into context with the apostle Paul. How many of these things did Paul experience? And now let's think of this. How about Jesus Christ himself? Did Jesus Christ ever experience tribulation? Did he ever experience distress? Did he ever experience persecution? Did he ever experience famine? Not having enough to eat. How about nakedness? How about peril? And finally, how about sword? Being hunted down to be murdered. And yet, this, these are, in other words, Paul is saying, look, these things that are in our lives, that are in believing people's lives, these are believers that experience these things. And when we consider that, <clears throat> he comes to verse 37, and then he says this, but in all these things, those things that he had just mentioned, all of those things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Through him who loved us. We're going to conquer. In fact, those very things that were just mentioned, that we just talked about, those seven different things, those very circumstances, uncomfortable, difficult, exhausting, distressing, dangerous, excruciating, painful, those are all ordained by God. They are the God-ordained means by which believers overwhelmingly conquer. In fact, Paul's description here in verse 37 is that those very things are, um, they are winning a most glorious victory, overwhelmingly conquer. Those things that could be used against us to defeat us, God turns around and uses those same things to work endurance in us until he finally glorifies, it, glorifies us. And I'm always reminded when we come to this, something like this, to, when I think of this, I'm always reminded of the end of Genesis when Joseph says to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And Paul is saying here, for glory. For glory. That is just, and that is just a taste of an example of what God has done and is doing in his people. 
And this is what, <clears throat> you know, this whole aspect of these sufferings and God's um, doing something in us for his glory and for our good, that reality, um, he began, Paul began it with helping us understand this back in chapter 5. And in fact, if you just turn a few pages back, back to chapter 5 in those first few verses, he says in verses 3 to 5, <clears throat> let's just read those, read that, where he says this, when he begins this aspect of uh, the results of justification and the benefits of justification, he says this, and not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proving character and proving character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The tribulations are doing something. The tribulations, God is doing something in the tribulations, but it's like the tribulations are producing something in me, in me by God's grace and by his spirit. What are they producing? Ultimately, they are producing in us hope. And that hope is priceless. There is a glory to that that we do not fully understand. But it's priceless. And God is working this in you because he loves you. And you've got then this connection of tribulation and God's love. <clears throat> now the triumph that we have, where he says there in, back in chapter 8 and verse um, 37, where he talks about overwhelmingly conquer, that triumph is not attributed to believers or because of believers. The conquering is not due to believers' strength and power. The conquering, the triumph, is attributed to the love of Christ. And this, this work that he's doing, this is to work in us the very thing that seems contradictory. He is working in us through these aspects, these tribulations, for his glory. <clears throat> and we could, we could even just look across the page to Romans 8 and verse 17 where he says there, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Like, <clears throat> there is this working going on and this conquering, the ultimate reward, uh, the ultimate reward is that it will far surpass any temporal loss that we experience here on this earth. Like this, this overwhelmingly conquer through him, like that is going to be far exceed our understanding right now of what that glory is. It is coming and it is uh, truly glorious. It is beyond what we could ever imagine. And he says then <clears throat> in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings Going back there in chapter 8, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He, he's, he's kind of connecting that with what he's saying here. And we know back in verses 18 down through verse 25, he there again gives us more understanding of those sufferings or those groanings. And so again, we've got this connection between our sufferings and glory that is to come. And then it spells it out. Let me just say um, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18 says this. For momentary, <clears throat> our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are 
eternal. And they are ours in the future. So verse 38, he comes to the answer. He says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? In verse 38, he says this, for I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. <coughs> and what he does is he delineates then <coughs> in these 11 things, the reality <coughs> that nothing can First of all, he states that not any state of existence, that is life or death. Death cannot separate us. The physical separation of our souls from our bodies, that cannot separate us from God's love for us. Life with all its allurements and dangers and trials, life cannot separate us. He goes on and then he says... <clears throat> Nothing in the spiritual world. That is, no angels, no principalities. And this is both sides. We've got, if a mighty angel of God were to try to come between us and God's love, he could not do it. Or if you take a mighty demon were to try to come between us and God's love, it's impossible. <clears throat> then you've got this, <clears throat> time. Time is powerless, things present nor things to come. That is nothing in the present with all its temptations and sufferings and nothing in the future. That is the future with all its uncertainties. Nothing that cannot come between us and God, God's love. Spiritual powers, <clears throat> other powers, any invisible, hostile, spiritual, intelligent, that even though they are conquered by God, uh, can still carry out spiritual warfare against us, those cannot come between us and God's love. No obstacle in the universe from top to bottom, that is, no height or depth. Physical items, such as mountains or caves that go down into the earth deeply. No distance can separate us, whether we are on the world or in the universe somewhere, out in space, nothing. That cannot separate us. And then Paul, just in the end, simply says, nothing that God created. No created thing. And it's like Paul just, just gathers up everything into one bottle, uh, bundle and simply says, all creation everywhere cannot separate us. And Paul is convinced of this, where he says, I am convinced of all of these things cannot separate us. If Paul is convinced of this, then we too can be absolutely convinced of this. Paul is God's mouthpiece for us. He's the one whom God used to declare these things to us. And he is the one who knows, having seen the risen Christ, it was taught directly from him. If Paul is convinced, then we are, we can be convinced. The reality is this. Nothing, 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 absolutely nothing separates us from the love of Christ. <clears throat> all of these questions and all of these answers are ours to give us security in Christ. We are beloved. We are secure. So we take our eyes, this is what we have to do, we've got to take our eyes off of ourselves. We've got to take our eyes off of the circumstances and whatever suffering and trouble is around us, we've got to take our eyes off of those things and put them 
on the one who loves us, on Jesus Christ. And know, as we do that, that those realities, <clears throat> give ourselves to the realities in our heart, keep our eyes on him, and hold them fast in your heart. Paul was rock solid in his conviction that this is true. And this is for us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This chapter <clears throat> begins with that great statement, there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And it ends with this, there is no separation in Christ Jesus. And we have this for us as God's people, as his, as believers in him. And may we just continue to stand right there and think on these things. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for all that we have in Christ. We thank you for these things as you've given them to us in your word. Help us, I pray, to stand and look at and know these realities <clears throat> that you've given to us through the Apostle Paul. May you be glorified in our lives. And Father, we look forward to that glory that will be ours someday. Or we are yours, and Father, we just are grateful for all these things again. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.